This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. So we have started a box set series and um, I'm, I'm loving this box set series. I think as a, someone who speaks, you always get more out of it than the person that listens. So I'm sorry about that. I'm just going to get more out of my own talks than you are. Um, but uh, if you... Um, if you want to look into it more, then do. do don't just take what you hear on a Sunday and uh, take it for granted. Read about it yourself. And I'll include some references at some point as well. But we've started this box set series. And with the box set series, um, I always start with a working title. Because what we're trying to do is discover what the Bible's saying to us, what God's saying to us through the Bible. And so my working title for this, it might change as we go through, but I think my working title is Building a Community of Hope. Uh, being a Community of Hope. And... Um, in my previous talk called Hope in Jesus earlier in January, if you, um, if you listen to that, if you haven't, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. It's just 20 minutes, but it's basically um, Luke. It's on the book of Luke, and it's a bit of an overview of Luke. And what I tried to do was show that Luke is arguing and portraying Jesus as a revolutionary leader um, who gave the majority of the people around him hope. And I say the people around him, I mean get the people that lived in Judea and Galilee at that time. So he was a figure of hope for those people who lived in his presence. And uh, most of the Judean and Galilean population lived in poverty. And Jesus himself was poor. And uh, he emerged uh, from a poor rural village. Now, it's always risky comparing Jesus to a contemporary figure. So please forgive me and don't get too upset with me when I make this comparison. But I want to do it for the point of emphasis. I'm trying to emphasize this this nature of Jesus as a revolutionary, as someone who grew up in a poor environment and fought on behalf of the poor and the marginalised. And so forgive me if this doesn't work for you, but it certainly helps me. Um, so you remember back in the 80s, there was the coal miners' strikes in the UK. And there, they were principally the figurehead of that revolution was a man called Arthur Scargill. And he led the miners... Um, in, in, in resisting the closure of the coal, mining uh, the coal pits and the impact on the coal mining communities. And um, the strikes divided the country. Um, I mean, just re you know, referring back to what Sam was saying just now when you were 14, I think I was 14 about this time. And I remember it, it was a, mass it was a massive deal those of you that might remember it. And on the one hand, you had Margaret Thatcher, the Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. On the other hand, you had um, Arthur Scargill leading the, uh, the miners in these strikes. And it was very disruptive to the country, but it was even more disruptive to those people who's, who lived in the villages where the pits were being closed. And uh, this was all over north of England, the East Midlands, and South Wales. And, uh, and the reality is, is that um, you had Scargill fighting as a revolutionary on behalf of the poor, uh, to some extent, and Thatcher was a political power threatening to make the plight of the poor worse. So I know there's more detail to it, there's more nuance to that, but if you'll just uh, indulge me a moment. Um, and history shows us that Thatcher won and Scargill faded into relative obscurity. Now, without commenting on who was right or wrong, I simply want to suggest that Jesus was also seen as a revolutionary who was fighting on behalf of the poor and the marginalised against the political powers and the religious powers who were threatening to make their plight worse. And that's the context that Luke writes in, I would argue. Now, we're looking at Acts, and Acts was also written by Luke. It's kind of like part two. And like most revolutionaries, we see that... Um, in, in the story of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, that Jesus was killed. Now, there's lots of reasons why we interpret Jesus, how we interpret Jesus' death, but principally Jesus was killed because he was a revolutionary, because the political powers wanted to put down the revolution. And how do you put down a revolution? You put down a revolution by killing the leader of the revolution. But of course, it didn't do that. 
and rumors started to circulate that Jesus had come back to life only 36 hours after he had died. Now, I use the word revolution to describe Jesus, but there is a more provocative word to describe Jesus that um, was inflammatory and provocative to the religious authorities at the time, and that's the word Messiah. Now, we use the word Messiah in Greek, it's Christ. That's where we get the word Jesus Christ from. Or in Hebrew, we would say Yeshua, um, 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 Messiah. That's for one of, there, there is a more, more Hebrew word, but Messiah is our translation of it. But in Greek, it's Christ. So that's where we get the word Jesus Messiah from, or Jesus Christ from. Now, to Pontius Pilate and the Roman authorities, Jesus' political power as a revolutionary was the greatest threat. But to the religious leaders, the leaders of the temple, the leaders of the synagogues, it was actually Jesus the Messiah that was more threatening. Why? Because they were threatened by the divine power that Jesus exercised. So Jesus had enemies in both camps, politically and religiously. And when we read the two book of Luke's and Acts, we need to remember that the, the Judeans and the Galileans, of which Jesus was a Galilean, the Judeans and the Galileans are living under the colonial rule of Rome. And I think we forget that. We forget that they were living with the boot of Rome on their neck. They were oppressed, they were subjugated, they were militarily dominated. And the, these ordinary people are desperate for a revolutionary to kick the Romans out of the land and rise up and restore the kingdom of Israel. And in fact, there are a number of people who have tried to do that in the couple of centuries before Jesus appears. So this is the context that we're reading Luke and Acts. So we're just going to turn to Acts 1, verses 1 to 6, and we're going to run through chapter 1 today. Okay, so in my former book, Theophilus, Luke says, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven and after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Uh, this, this verse 3 is like a summary of all of Luke's work in his, in his former book. After suffering, Jesus presented himself to the disciples and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a, f- a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Sorry, let me just clarify that. That's a summary of Luke 24. On one occasion when he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift that my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Just, just focus on that sentence that I just said. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? To me, all of this sounds like Team Jesus is really excited really excited and really expectant that Jesus is going to overthrow the Roman Empire, that he is going to restore justice and power to the ordinary Judeans and Galileans. And they ask him, Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Then other words might have been like, Jesus, now, now you're back. Now you've been resurrected. Are you actually going to do what you've been talking about doing? Because when you died, we thought it was all over. But now you're back. Are you actually going to complete what you started? Is the kingdom going to be handed back to us? Are we going to kick the Romans out? Their enthusiasm at this stage, I think it reminds me of their enthusiasm, uh, which is recorded in Luke 9, 51 to 56, which I think this is uh, a bit of an amusing story, but you may not agree with me. Um, uh, Luke 9, 51. As the time, this is like way before Jesus died. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, 
Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So Jesus knows he's going to be killed. He knows that he's got the era of the uh, authorities on him now, and he's likely to be killed by uh, the political and the religious authorities. So he resolutely sets out for Jerusalem, Luke says. In other words, he knows he's going to his death. But he resolutely sets out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead, some of his disciples, who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. So he was obviously stopping off on the way. And uh, it says that the people in the Samaritan village did not welcome Jesus because he was heading for Jerusalem. I haven't got time to go into why that is. But when the disciples, James and John, saw this, saw that Jesus wasn't welcome in this village, this is what they said. They said, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? I mean, am I the only person that thinks that's funny? It's like, what are you on? Like, why? Just because Jesus isn't welcoming that town. You want to call fire down from heaven on, the, on these poor villagers who are just probably just ignorant of who Jesus is. I, what? Well, I know that I can be like that because Jesus is also like that. Jesus turned, and in a very succinct phrase, Luke says, Jesus turned and rebuked them. Now, I think Jesus probably... You want, obviously, we, in the Christian tradition, we kind of assume that Jesus is just meek and mild. I don't think he was. I think at that point he'd have been, shut up. Don't be stupid. Like, come on. What are you talking about? Get a grip of yourselves. You really think that's what I'm about? Is that the person I am? Of course not. Then he and his disciples went to another village. I just think that they were intoxicated by the power that Jesus demonstrated. They'd seen Jesus heal people. They'd seen Jesus multiply food and feed thousands of people. I think they just looked at the divine power that Jesus had. And they just thought, who are you to oppose this Jesus? Who are you? Like, how dare you speak badly of Jesus? I'm going to call fire down from heaven upon you. It's like, get a grip of yourselves. And Jesus clearly shares that. But I do wonder if having now just witnessed the resurrection again, and not again, for, I might add, for the first time, whether they're just intoxicated. They're like, Jesus, who they saw killed, they took his body off the cross. He was put in a tomb. He was dead for 36 hours. He's now resurrected. They're like, this, this person can do anything. I just want to say a word about the resurrection. Um, and I've said this before. We're coming up to a time in the year after Easter when we, when we think about the ascension. Because we're, uh, we, are, we're not, we don't have a strong Catholic tradition amongst us, we don't really think about the ascension. But actually, I think the ascension is one of the most important stories of, if you like, of the Christian calendar. Uh, and we will talk about it then. But I just briefly we just want to give you some thoughts on it if you haven't thought a bit like this before. Um, the, the resurrection was not resuscitation. Okay, and um, we all know what resuscitation is, right? So someone has a heart attack, bang, you get a defibrillator, put it on them, bang, their heart starts again and they're back to life. They're resuscitated, yeah? We get that. That's not what happens to Jesus. Okay, so Jesus died, his body's dead for 36 hours. Um, and when he is resurrected, he actually, and some of you may have missed this, but he actually looks different. His, his appearance is different. I don't know what, how, but it's so different that the disciples don't recognize him. And they spend hours with him. You know, the guys who are on the road to Emmaus, just, they spent hours talking to him. And they sit down and eat food with him. And they still don't recognize him. And then suddenly they start recognizing him. Jesus reveals himself to them, it says. 
So some, something about Jesus looked very different. Mary didn't recognise him in the Garden of Gethsemane either. So something is happening here. He appears to them for 40 days in weird ways. He seems to transport himself from one place to another without walking. Um, he appeared so suddenly and immediately to a group of them in a room that he, they thought he was a ghost. So there's something very strange and different and bizarre about the resurrected Jesus. He isn't, he isn't quite the same as he was prior to death. So when the disciples excitedly ask the resurrected Jesus if he's going to finish the job, I think they have one thing on their mind, and that is the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. That's why Luke records them as saying, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel at this time? And that means one thing. It means getting the Romans out of their kingdom and restoring the monarchy. And who's going to be the king? Jesus. And of course, they want to be involved in this. They've already tasted some of Jesus' supernatural power. What do they want to do with that? They wanted to call fire down on the Samaritan village. I bet the conversation with them would have been something like this, uh, you know, in Acts 1. Do you think we'll be able to call down fire on the Roman army? I mean, they'll probably look at themselves, well, we're not going to be able to be defeat the Roman army, but we can call fire down on the Roman army. Maybe we'll be able to get revenge on the soldiers that actually put Jesus on the cross. I think they had that in mind. Maybe they thought to themselves, who's going to call fire down on Pontius Pilate? Because this is going to happen, boys. Jesus is back. And I want to add that I think that as a, as a man, I recognise that. You know, we men, we're filled with testosterone. We just want to kind of make a difference. It's a bit pathetic, but we just want to make a difference. We just want to do something. Come on. And I think there's something about that in them. They, just, they weren't just meek and mild Christian men. They were aggressive men. We know that because only about six weeks before, Peter takes a sword when uh, the soldiers come to arrest Jesus. You know, I mean, Jesus only just stops him from killing one of them. He actually cuts off his ear. I think he just wasn't very good with the sword. <laughs> you know, but they're aggressive men. Power is important to them. They want to be heroes. They want to put things right. I bet they were asking for that sort of power. And Jesus says to them, you want power? You're going to get power. I think he said it with half a smile on his face. Yeah, boys, you're going to get power. It's coming. Power's coming. In a few days, you're going to get power. And they're thinking, yes, this is going to be amazing. Acts 1, 7 and 8, he said to them, it's not for you to know the dates or the times that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. I've put in brackets there, ambassadors in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So boys, stay put. That power's going to come to you. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing. I think they would have been really high. I think they would have been really excited about the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. Jesus will be king. And who's going to be his court of advisors? The boys, they're going, to be the, they're going to be his deputies. They're going to be his ambassadors. They're going to be the rulers. They've got form on this. You know they've got form on this. Because if you know the stories of Jesus, you'll remember when James and John say to Jesus, Jesus, when you're made king, can we be your deputies? Do you remember that? And Jesus says, I don't think you really know what you're asking, but uh, maybe. They wanted a piece of the action. They wanted some power. But of course, that dream had died with the death of Jesus. But now Jesus is back to life. It's all back on again. They're all excited. The dream is alive. 
And, and that word, I put that word in for witnesses as ambassadors because maybe ambassadors of this restored kingdom means that they'll get, they'll get a nice gig in Rome. Maybe they'll be the ambassador to this new kingdom of Israel in Rome, teaching Rome that you can't, you can't put your boot on the neck of the Israeli uh, kingdom. Maybe they'll be ambassadors in Athens, maybe Antioch. Some of them will just settle for being an ambassador in Samaria or Judea. But it looks like they're looking forward to the rewards for those who've been loyal followers of Jesus. I mean, you know what it's like. You know, I mean, political parties reward people that support them. That's why we have a House of Lords. The reality is they were looking for power. And Jesus says, yes, boys, you're going to get power. You're going to get some power. But then something happened that they were seriously, seriously not expecting. Okay, Luke says, the next verse is this. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. Just for a minute, just imagine that happened today. Let's say Juliet just kind of walks out that door and floats up into the sky. Uh, all of us are just going to be like, what just happened? And I think that's what the disciples were like. I think the disciples were like, what just happened? Jesus has gone again? How are we going to restore the kingdom of Israel if you disappear, Jesus? They must have felt dumbfounded. They were just about to crown Jesus king and complete the revolution, and he disappears before their very eyes. And in Acts 1, 10 to 11, this is why I did this, because it says, they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. And suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here gawping up into the sky. This same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back the same way you've seen him go into heaven. They must have been stunned. Now, if there's one thing I just want to highlight to us all as we read through the book of Acts these next couple of months, and also as we read the letters of Paul, is that there was this expectation, and you see it right through the letters of Paul, and that is true in Acts as well. There was this expectation that Jesus was going to return the same way he went. So he went up into the sky and they expect him to come back, but they expect him to come back in their lifetime. And that shaped quite a lot of the way they acted. So when we read the New Testament, when we read the Lesson of Paul, when we read Acts, we've got to keep in mind that they were expecting Jesus to return. And right now, I think it's clear that they were expecting Jesus to return. So what do they do? They go, they only were a kilometer from Jerusalem. They're just outside the walls of Jerusalem when this all happens. So what happens? They walk back to the house where they've been staying. And this is what happens. I think they're expecting Jesus to return because this is what happens. Verse 15. Luke includes this really interesting fact. And I don't know if you've ever asked yourself why that's in there. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers. A group, in parenthesis, it says, a group numbering about 120. Why? Why is that in there? Well, in Jewish law, 120 people was the minimum number of men required to form a community with its own council. It was like a parish council. 
okay? So in where we live in the village, village of Flatsbourne, there is a parish council. There's certainly more than 120 people living there. There's a parish council. And the parish council picks litter, like makes decisions on the way, perhaps a couple of new table tennis tables at the, at the community centre, those sorts of things. Small scale stuff, but it's all related to the local community. So 120 people is the minimum that's required for somebody to set up a community and then a community with its own council. And how many councillors do they have? Anyone want to guess? 12, exactly. They have 12 councillors. What's the significance of the number 12? Well, in, in Hebrew culture, the number 12 is the number that represents perfect government. The modern day Neset, which is the parliament, the, the Israeli parliament, has 120 representatives. We would call them MPs, they call them MKs, members of the Neset. 120. And there are 12 standing committees that govern Israel and cover all area of civil and, uh, civil and civic life. 12, because it's the perfect number of government. In Jewish culture, we've got the 12 tribes of Israel. We've got the 12 disciples. In Matthew 26, Jesus says that he had the power to call 12 legions of angels. In other words, the whole military of heaven. You know, it's not a very good set of words, but nevertheless, there's, there's some sense in that. So what's happening is that Jesus disappears. And I'm pretty sure that the disciples at that time thought Jesus was just going to return like a week later. And what do they do? They prepare for government. Because they're still convinced that Jesus is going to lead the revolution and restore the kingdom of Israel. Because Jesus said, yes, that is going to happen, but it's not for us to know the times. So they go back to this house where they're staying. There's 120 of them at least, and that's just the man. They form a new government. This is what this whole section is about. There's one of their number, one of their 12 has died, Judas. He, he, he betrayed Jesus, and then he was so riven with guilt that he killed himself. So they've got only 11. So they haven't got a full parish council. So they make every effort to elect a new member. I think someone called Matthias. We don't know much about Matthias. We hear about him once, and then that's it after this. So what are they doing? They're preparing for government. They're organizing themselves as best they know in the expectation that Jesus is going to return and is going to restore the kingdom of Israel. I don't know about you. I don't think they knew what was going to happen to them. I mean, Jesus has said they're going to be baptised in the Holy Spirit like John baptised people in the water. Baptised, the better word for baptise would be immerse. So they're going to be immersed in something called the Holy Spirit. They don't know what that means. They have no concept of what that means. They're just waiting and in their minds, Jesus is going to return, lead them to restore the kingdom of Israel. So what do they do? They form a government structure. A council of 12 and a community of 120. They're waiting. They're waiting for the power. And I think they're expecting political power, supernatural power, power to call down fire upon the Romans. And they're waiting. Now, we're not going to talk today about what power they actually get. But I am going to say this. They get power, but it's not power over people. It's not governmental power. It's power to serve people. And this expectation that, that the disciples had is a good metaphor 
for what the book of Acts is all about. That what they expect God will do with them isn't really what happens. It's about how God doesn't meet people's expectations, but does something different that they don't expect. And that's what the book of Acts is, is right. If there, was a, if there was a theme running through Acts, it would be what God does versus what people expect God to do. And I think we're going to be surprised by what we find. So I just want to give you a moment just to ponder that. We're running over time. Just let me ask you a few questions. You might just want to close your eyes. Just for let's do this for 60 seconds. Are you waiting for a revolution in your own life? Are you waiting for Jesus to meet your expectations? What are you hoping that Jesus will do in your lifetime? The book of Acts will show us that God will consistently exceed your expectations. But that's more to do with the fact that our expectations are more driven by our agenda than God's. So I pray that today that we might humbly accept and our place in, um, in the universe. <laughs> that we might humbly Accept that we, we are called to serve rather than lord it over others. And as we, as we uh, move into this new week, I pray that we might see the things that God is doing in our lives that we might have vision and clarity about what God is doing in our lives. Give us, give us humility, Holy Spirit, to, um, to be prepared to accept that it won't necessarily be what we expect it to be. Give us confidence in you to know that you work all things confidence that you turn things upside down and continue to confound us. Give us wisdom to see life as you see it. Jesus, that you will, that you do, and you will continue to surprise us. What a great way to live. Thank you for your goodness to us. Amen.